Welcome to Talking Precision Medicine, the podcast in which we discuss the future of healthcare and health technology and how advances in data and data science are fueling the next industrial revolution. This episode features Jason Springs, co-founder and CEO of Endpoint Health, an ascendant precision therapeutics company. Jason is a serial entrepreneur who, with the co-founders of his previous company, is building Endpoint Health to bring together under one roof the data science, diagnostics, and therapeutics necessary to achieve truly personalized healthcare. Come in and have a listen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Talking Precision Medicine. It's my distinct pleasure to introduce and, and welcome our guest, Jason Springs. Jason is co-founder and CEO of Endpoints Health, a really interesting, innovative precision medicine company. I'm going to let Jason do the talking, though, and tell us uh, what Endpoints Health is all about. Perfect. Thank you for the, uh, the chance to share a story, Raphael. So, yeah, yeah, Endpoint Health. I think the best way to think about us is we are a precision therapeutics company. And what that means to us is really uh, we're trying to create uh, what we think is the future state of what therapeutic companies or maybe even healthcare companies in general should be, which is developing therapies and always at the front understanding where those therapies should go, what patient populations and building, not just developing the therapies, but developing companion diagnostics to help pick those patients out in both clinical trials and in clinical practice as a baseline. We are focused first and foremost on diseases that are driven by the immune system, mostly immune dysregulation, which is a um, pretty broad area that ranges all the way over in areas like COVID-19, which of course is still in everyone's mind. A lot of the, the sickest patients that end up in the ICU, they're there because really their immune system has uh, had a very uh, massive reaction to an infection. And and you can always slide to the other end of the scale and look at chronic illnesses. And those range from things like rheumatoid arthritis to inflammatory bowel disease, but they all have a, a common origin, which is the immune system functioning in a way that, that really is harmful to the patient and to, to their own body. And that's where we think we can apply you know, our unique approach to really save lives where people haven't had success before and dramatically improve outcomes where picking responders out, picking the right patient out is the best way to both do development and, and practice clinical care. Now that sounds really important. And you are preaching to the choir. This is something that Jeannie Alice feels deeply about and thinks a lot about. How did you decide to, to do this? So without getting ahead of myself, this is not your first company you've built, but how did you decide that precision therapeutics is where you want to focus your energy? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a, a longer story than endpoint health. Um, I am lucky enough to have a couple of co-founders who have been through this journey, been through the journey of, of, of building and growing a, um, a healthcare company in the past. Really, the, the endpoint story starts with the first company that I built along with my co-founders, Diego Ray and Leonardo Teixeira, who serve as Endpoint Health's uh, Chief Scientific and Chief Operating Officer. Uh, we were all in graduate school at Cornell. Uh, I was in the business school, and, and they were both getting their PhDs. And we met in 2007, all looking to start a healthcare company. And uh, it, it was uh, truly as almost as simple as that. We met through a, a mutual um, colleague, a business school professor, and we ended up building a company called GeneWeave, which was based on actually just an idea that uh, my co-founders had uh, at the time. It wasn't even part of their original research, but the idea was around building 
really better diagnostics to identify patients with bacterial infections and uh, mm -hmm. kind of the, the transition part to endpoint health, figure out what the right therapy was, the right antibiotic was for those patients very quickly. Mm -hmm. And that company, we went through the classic venture capital uh, healthcare sequence, which was we, we came out to the San Francisco Bay Area, which is one of a few locations where there's really right. ecosystems to support this raised capital, built a company up and built out the, the underlying technology, which really was a um, fundamentally uh, new method of detecting and measuring information about bacteria. But over about a five-year period, we built out not just the technology, but the actual medical product around it, hardware, wetware, software. Mm -hmm. And by 2015, we were really working on products that were looking at figuring out what was the best therapy for a patient, mostly looking mm -hmm. at infections. And at that point, we were approached by Roche and ended up getting acquired and integrating into Roche. You know, that was a, an interesting transition period because by that point, we had all really, um, I don't know any other way to say it, we had fallen in love with the idea of making sure that patients got the best therapy for them based mm -hmm. on information we could see. It just it was a beautiful concept. And when you see how a lot of medicine works in the real world, which many of us see every day, that's far from how patients are treated on a day-to-day -day basis. And, um, you know, we, we were all there at Roche for a couple of years. And at the same time, we were there working on our own technology. We were watching a lot of the oncology practice at Roche, which spans both diagnostics and therapeutics. And that 2015 to 2017 window was a very interesting time period. We were deeply interested in getting the right therapy of the right patient. And at that same time, Roche, at the end of the day, ended up acquiring Flatiron Health and Foundation Medicine. Right. And of course, Genentech was also already had been uh, part of the Roche family. I, you know, I think it was going on a decade at that point. And the light bulbs went off for us. I'm sure they had gone off for, for our, our colleagues in the, the Roche organization. You know, seeing those three pillars under one roof just seemed like a fantastic opportunity to change the way that drug development occurred. And if you mm -hmm. back way up, we don't have to talk about the underlying technology, but if you think about it, you had a way to understand patients with flat iron health. They had access to patient data right. from the electronic medical record. Foundation Medicine had a, a very elegant solution for guiding patients to the right therapy. They have a FDA-approved companion diagnostic sure. panel, uh, and of course, Genentech is the you know one of the global leaders in oncology. And in our minds, we thought you know the next evolution of healthcare is going to be when those three functions are really integrated. And um, around that time, we basically got the bug again and said yeah. we should make we should make that company. <laughs> And um, we, at different times uh, from 2017 to through 2019, the three of us left, but we ended up coming back together still on that idea of building, you know, what the next mm -hmm. generation of healthcare companies would look like, which really was all about from the ground up, always having data science around patient data, testing right. capability to find the right patient and drug development all coordinated and integrated together. And, and that was the, the synthesis of Endpoint Health, mm -hmm. where we clinically ended up focusing really was a, a part of our, our own origin. We are a company focused on immunology, where the immune system right. isn't functioning the right way. We actually started in the hospital looking at probably the world's 
I'd say, greatest unmet medical need, which is uh, sepsis, acute respiratory distress right. syndrome, and those are immune-driven illnesses. And so we started out the company looking at how do we think about these problems? How do we think about and pull apart the immune response of patients in a way that could drive a different method of drug development? And over the last few years, where we've ended up is applying the techniques we developed there to many, many, many different disease areas that are primarily driven by immune dysregulation. We just fell in love with patients and making sure they got on the right drug at the right time. And we backed out to, well, what's the type of organization that would be a leader if that was your North Star? And Endpoint Health was our answer. And it's a, uh, I think, a successful experiment in the running. And we're, we're really excited for where we are. That's a, that's a really fantastic origin story. I've got a lot of topics I want to dive deep on. I'm going to say them out loud so I don't forget them, but we can pick some place to start. So I want to hear more about the actual tech you're building, and then we'll get back to that. I guess what's so interesting to me is that you, you kind of observed while you were at Roche, the same thing that strikes me as a, a problem or a challenge in making precision medicine a reality, which is the diagnostics industry and the drug industry are different industries. And in most times, they don't sit in the same roof and they have very little to actually do with one another. You know, very often diagnostic tests are invented and there is no drug to respond to what they learn. And often drugs are developed and there's no diagnostic test to help guide them. And it's just like two very separate entities. And so your observation that you want to pull them together is, I think, astute, but then where do you start? And so the question is really, you know, where is Endpoint Health on its journey? I know it's a young company, so, but maybe you could shed some light on, on how you as the CEO think about a strategic roadmap. If you have to build both a diagnostic and a drug and all the data and the data science that goes with it, like how much are you going to do in-house? How much do you think about outsourcing? Where do you even begin? It's a very tough and very good question. And it's something we think about a lot. And, and, you know, the earliest that we saw that was kind of a snapshot of this disconnect between the world of diagnostics and the world of drug development, you know, really went back to our final days, really thinking uh, with GeneWeave because antibiotics, you know, what you really are, you should have, mm -hmm. even in the, the earliest days when they were first invented, the knowledge that you should figure out which one is the right one first, what was a fundamental part of using those therapies, but oftentimes a test to guide the use of those drugs isn't launched at the same time as the drug. And that, that's a really complicated problem. And that is simply a poster child for how much of the industry works. Everything we've done with Endpoint has certainly been purposeful, even the name, you know, Endpoint Health. The name is there as a reminder that the company's not about the technology. It's about that end goal of generating additional units of health benefit for the patients we serve. One of the things that we focused very hard on was picking out disease areas and methods of looking at even at data and building the company out where the technical work that we brought in-house was the type of work that really had to be done in-house. It had to be something that was unique to us. You know, for example, the data science side, we have both clinicians that have data science training on staff, as well as data scientists that have deep understanding of biology on staff, because at the end of the day, if you're going to really make a precision medicine product, it's all about linking information together with what's really going to happen in a patient's body. That's all in-house. We have our own diagnostic staff because no matter how sophisticated your insights, if you don't really understand what your initial data means in terms of building a final 
physical blood test or whatever kind of test it is. If you've got at some point, a real physical test has to exist in a lab somewhere and it has to be stable and easy to use. Mm -hmm. And without that, there is no precision market because you can't transform, you can't translate insights into practical clinical development trials Mm -hmm. or clinical practice. So we bring that in-house, we have therapeutic development in-house. What what do we leave out? Uh, We do have a heavy partnership model. So there's two things that I think make us pretty unique compared to many of your data-driven or or AI-driven drug discovery companies, or or just people thinking about how to change the world that way. One is we actually partner and put our companion diagnostic test onto other people's systems. So we have a partnership with Biocardis. They have a platform Mm -hmm. that's actually used by other companies to to develop their companion diagnostics. And that way we don't, you know, we start life off as a company with a relatively robust, globally placed diagnostic system. So we can make sure that therapies could be Mm -hmm. guided to patients all over the world. On the therapeutic side, both for de-risking the company and for just serving patients as best and fast as we can, uh, we actually skew to the side of identifying therapies that have already been developed by other biotech or pharma organizations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the benefit there is the way our platform works, which we can talk about a bit. If we see a population of patients that we really think might respond to a particular therapy, and that therapy is already approved, uh, you know, on the market, or Mm -hmm. perhaps has gone through phase one or into phase two clinical trials, what you get to do is skip way ahead. You get you fast forward and get a therapy into precision trials, into the clinic, into patient hands much faster because you skip over a lot of that long and expensive drug discovery Mm -hmm. process. And so those are two areas where from a business model standpoint, we design the company, not just to understand patients, but to translate that understanding into precision therapies in the global hands of clinicians at scale in a risk, you know, risk mitigated and honestly much faster way than than traditional. Case in point, uh, you know, we're, we're heading towards filing our, our first IND, uh, which will take us into our first phase two trial next year. We've only been around for about three and a half years. So that's a, mm-hmm. a pretty, pretty quick jump to, uh, to head into that stage of clinical development. And it was all planned out. And, you know, it's a different way of looking at it. All, all the different, I think, points of view are, are needed, but that makes us unique. No, that, that's fascinating. It does make a lot of sense. You know, th- there was a model in some of the early kind of AI drug discovery companies to do something similar. Now they were not focused inherently on a precision, like patient subtyping approach, but this idea of if our algorithms can come up with a drug, let's try to find one we can repurpose because we can certainly get the proof points in the clinic a lot faster. And that makes a ton of sense. Um, The fact that you can actually target those to patients who are going to benefit makes even more sense. So I I think it's a a strategy that, that really has legs. So in terms of where the company is, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty amazing traction so far. How, where are you in your kind of fundraising and your growth? You know, how big are you? I'd be interested to know more about how much above your weight you're actually punching. <laughs> yeah, that, that very interesting use of phrasing. It's something we've talked about a lot internally. So, so we've been around for about three and a half years. We had our mm-hmm. first uh, round of financing in 2019 uh, that was led by the Mayfield Fund. Uh, we have some announcements that'll come out, I'd say, uh, in, in the near future, but I won't preview them too much here. I'll, I'll okay, uh, let's... Let, let, those, okay. <laughs> let those go out. We have 
uh, about 24 people full time. I actually, I need to go check. We've uh, had a couple of new folks join just over the last couple of days, and I need to see what what the roster is up to. And because we have a partnership model, there's quite a number of uh, you know additional staff that we have uh, on on contract. You know, we grew up during COVID, so you know, not not just having the number of people, but I think just who's in the company and where they are is interesting. Uh, we have people from data science background, diagnostics, therapeutics, mm-hmm. academic background, startup right. background, decades of experience in industry. And I think right now we have employees in four countries on three continents uh, because we were able to really scale and, and mm-hmm. go, go where the talent was, which is uh, really interesting. It's a, uh, I'm sure many of your guests talk about this. Yeah, no, you're, you're seeing my love language. This sounds a lot like our composition as well. It's highly global. And um, I think COVID has given us all a, a really good excuse to try new models of company formation and company growth. You know how some companies, they have kind of underneath their, their geographic locations, you know, like a design house may say, you know, Paris, Milan, and, and wherever, Paris, Milan, London, startups, it's usually Boston, San Francisco, maybe San Diego or something. Well, this one was remote first. Toronto, Boston. And I thought that was pretty yeah. clever. Zoom, yeah. that's where we're located in Zoomville. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do feel like we live there. But I want, to, I want to get into your solution a bit, though. And, and there's sort of the two aspects, sort of technologically, and obviously, you don't have to give away the secret sauce, but sort of technologically, what do you do that's cool and unique? And then getting back to the partnership model, you know, these are data-hungry operations. So how do you think about sourcing the right data for your solution? Um, you know, so from a, a tech standpoint, we really have three pillars in, inside the house. So we have our data science, we have diagnostics, and we have therapeutic development. And, and really everything it, that we do is enabled by the information that we look at from patients. We very much live a patient-centric data uh, uh, point of view, and it kind of starts with, well, what kind of information do we capture? So we primarily focus on looking at gene expression data. So whole transcriptomic data from patients that are suffering from immune-driven illnesses. And what we've developed is a proprietary machine learning platform that takes in that data and uses an unsupervised machine learning technique. And, And there's a really important reason for that. What we are primarily interested in is states or distinct about the immune system you know, what you're really looking at is, is states, it's a dynamic system. And, you know, what the past has shown us is that if you look at any one individual marker, whether it's RNA or a cytokine, uh, you're, you really are not capturing the full resolution of the patient. You're looking at really just one mechanism moving up and down. So we have a, a very broad-based approach to, to look at these patients. And what we've ended up seeing is that when you look at uh, all the data coming from a patient, especially in immune-driven illnesses, what you get is not just information from individual cell types, which I know is a big focus if you're looking at target discovery or drug discovery, but you also get the broader patient picture, which is really important because anytime you have a dynamic system you know, working in the body, you have a lot of feedback loops. And at the end of the day, a physician treats a patient. They don't treat an individual mm-hmm. cell, although they are critically important. So- right the basic output of our system is that we end up seeing these immune defined subgroups of patients. And our job after that is to look at the biological characteristics and and what we've seen so far. And you can see some of our uh, uh, earliest publications, uh, relatively recent in uh, journals like shock 
is that mm -hmm. these subgroups of patients have pretty distinct characteristics when it comes to uh, what functions of the immune system are upregulated or downregulated. And what we've seen is that that seems to carry some weight when it comes to how patients may respond to therapies that suppress or attenuate different immune responses. And if you mm -hmm. fast forward all the way to how does that translate into an actual clinical trial or a therapy, at the end of the day, what we're doing is identifying populations of patients that what our evidence shows us is they'll respond differently to the types of therapies that may be used to tune the immune system up or down, whether it's an anti-inflammatory or an immune stimulant. And it's our job when we translate that into products to make tests, diagnostic tests that are easy to deploy that can actually identify those patients in the real world. And we also identify which therapies seem to uh, have signal that they'll work better uh, in those mm -hmm. subgroups. And we, we go out and identify an in-license or partner around those therapies. That's how we ended up mm -hmm. with our, our very first in-license. We identified antitrauma three as a potential very key therapy in a subgroup of sepsis patients we could identify that seemed to have a large amount of coagulation disorder, mm -hmm. which was triggered by immune response. And mm -hmm. this sequence of events, understanding the patient, being able to translate that into a test that can let the physician understand who the patient is right. and attaching a therapy that may be particularly beneficial to those patients is one of the, the powers of having all three of those pillars in-house. Yeah, that's a, a great example. You said something that just kind of slipped in, but I want to highlight it. You, you said once you've done your machine learning and you've identified you know, immune-defined subgroups, you look at the biology of those subgroups. And that piece is, is really important. I've had this conversation now three times today. It's like, what do you do with the black box model? And the short answer is in diagnostics, I don't think you can let it remain a black box. You have to be able to explain it. Actually, I'm very glad you brought it up. And it's uh, <laughs> something that it, it, it's almost easy for us to forget to, to highlight that the machine learning is the permission slip to go and do the hard clinical validation work. And case in point, once we've seen some subgroups to us, that's interesting, but to be honest, it's meaningless until you look at what's going on with the rest of the patient population. Are we actually seeing differences in biology? Can we validate that those patients have different clinical features that are meaningful? And then of course, at the end of the day, we do look and, and you actually, you, you asked this, you know, what is the real thing that matters? Can you actually take a look at uh, patient data from being treated uh, either with a therapy in the real world or in a clinical right. trial and actually see that there's statistically significant differences in how those patient groups respond. Because mm -hmm. we're not just in this business to create math, we're in this to create the capability of treating patients much better than they're treated now. And, and that, right. that tough slog, and, and, and it's not just the subgroups, it's making sure you can repeat that work with a well-validated in vitro diagnostic mm -hmm. test because you still have to deploy it globally. So, you know, in the case of sepsis, I'm guessing, but I could be wrong that, that you're going to be working with like data that derive from blood draws or, or something similar. Does your partnership model then extend to, to hospitals, points of primary care? You're mostly working with academic clinicians. Like, how do you think about, you know, accessing the patient populations you need both to do the modeling, but also the validation? I think like many companies, you, you've got a, a multi-pronged approach. So there's, of course, uh, absolutely fantastic public data sets that are available, which I think is, you know, a credit to NIH funded work that's happened over the decades. You know, other avenues that we work with, we, we do have partnerships with academic medical centers, 
Uh, we actually have a, a pretty large partnership in Brazil where we've done a lot of our perspective, basically created our own patient registries for longitudinal mm -hmm. data, both capturing biologic information, but clinical outcomes as well. So that before going into a clinical trial, you know, we really have vetted and de-risked exactly what we expect to see in terms of both data and patient uh, patient statistics mm -hmm. going into a trial. You know, so there's a, a lot of different areas that, that we capture data, but I'd say they fall into, you know, you can start in a lot of areas with great public data. Uh, a week in the library can save you a year in the lab. An old colleague of ours used to say that. Uh, and then, you know, as you move forward, a lot of the work really is perspective observational studies. And then, of course, interventional mm -hmm. trials when you, you get to therapeutic uh, work. Mm -hmm. And all of it involves very deep relationship building with the clinicians that are seeing these patients every day. You, you can't build a new mm -hmm. therapy without really getting the input from the clinical community at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so sepsis makes a ton of sense to me. We actually had a, a podcast episode a few a few back with um, another company working on sepsis from a totally different angle. It, it seems like a, a real scourge and a great place for different technologists to focus. What was the inspiration for, for focusing on the immune system sort of writ large? Is one of your co-founders kind of an immunologist by training or, or is it um, just that it, it happens to underlie so much of what we think we know about disease? Again, I'll go back. It, it honestly started with the patients. You know, we had spent quite a long time looking at infections in hospitals, which is really about bacteria or viruses that get into the patient's body. But as you know, we, we decided, let's start looking at how we could improve how sepsis patients are cared for, how clinical trials are run there, because it's an area with limited clinical success. Mm -hmm. And the lens that we were looking at those patients with was one where they were complex patients. We thought there must be a way to use much of the data that's been generated around these patients and new techniques of looking at it to solve this problem. And we went where the science led us. It led us to looking primarily at the immune system. That's where the heterogeneity really seemed to come from. We developed right. our platform to pull that heterogeneity apart. And then we kept asking the question, well, if this problem exists here, where else do you have the immune system heavily involved in illnesses where treatments either don't exist or where they're nowhere near as effective in all the patients that get them as, as any of us would like. And right. we just kept pulling that thread. And um, we saw some very beautiful patterns continue to, to come up over and over and over again. And um, I think what we're really seeing is, is something similar to, to what happened in oncology, where we're at today in the world of oncology. And I won't claim to be an expert there, but even I can see how the trial endpoints are, are changing and evolving where you have mutation positive patients with a tumor of any particular origin. And, you know, what we're really starting to see is certain immune states that seem to be the same type of immune state across many, many, many different illnesses. And mm -hmm. they may have different clinical features, but that underlying cause seems to be kind of similar. And, you know, you've actually seen this before. If, if you look in a lot of um, asthma and respiratory illnesses, you're, you actually see some therapies that have been approved. Uh, I think it's uh, eosinophilic asthma or type 2 inflammation asthma. And people are starting to see this common pattern in other respiratory-driven illnesses. Mm -hmm. So I think we're, we're really at the front of a, a huge transformation in how just diseases involving the immune system are treated. And so we're, we're excited to push that forward. But you know, it all just came back to asking, what can we do to help some patients we really care about that didn't have options 
and you back out from there. Yep. The patient heterogeneity piece is really interesting to me too. I mean, this is why probably most drugs don't succeed in clinical trials and why they don't even necessarily work in the real world, right? Because people are so damn different. It's funny, the, uh, my, uh, a lot of my personal perspective on the world, you know, it, case in point for what you're mentioning, you know, I, I look at a lot of illnesses and I always think back to growing up, my mother's a type one diabetic. So very early in life, I was used, I, I thought all healthcare really was about taking a blood test, measuring something, and then taking for her insulin, uh, uh, right. only if you got the right result that, you know, a very, uh, looking back, very naive point of view, right. but it's a, it's a really great microcosm to look at how important precision medicine can be because you have insulin. In fact, you know, synthetic insulin, which was the, uh, the herald of the, the modern biotech age coming out of Genentech and Eli Lilly. And it works. It works all the time. Mm -hmm. The question is, are you the right patient for it? Are you a type one diabetic or not? And at this point in time, are you in the right state to have a positive mm -hmm. outcome from taking that therapy? And I think that's been a story for a very long time. But my guess is as as we progress technically, clinically over time, we're going to see that that story where there may have been some clinical trials that, that failed or didn't work nearly as much as we want or, or the same story in the real world, I think we're going to see, especially in these very complex illnesses, uh, whether it's neurodegenerative, immune-driven, infectious disease, we're going to see that that's actually been the story in a lot of places the mm -hmm. whole time. And you know, the goal is, well, how, how do you rewrite that story so that patients benefit and you build a different kind of company around it. And, and that's really what we're, we're, we're focusing on, but I'm, uh, I'm in full belief with you. Let's, let's talk about building that company a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm interested to pull on the thread a bit that you've mentioned about how diverse your, your team is just in terms of the backgrounds and the expertise. You know, how have you and your co-founders thought about prioritizing certain pieces of expertise about recruiting, about attracting that talent? And maybe the most important thing, and I, I'm stealing this from my friend Tina Larson at Recursion Pharma, which is coming up with a common language that everyone can speak, right? <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, that is absolutely a critical activity to do. And, and it's not easy. It's something you have to recognize that a lot of words that are, are very well defined in many different industries actually mean dramatically different things. Um, you know, one, one of my favorite meetings was uh, we have, you know, our diagnostic, our diagnostic team and we have a you know, therapeutic team. And when they get together and talk about technical progress, you typically have a phase zero, phase one, phase two, phase three in the diagnostic world. And that's right. before you get into uh, <laughs> clinical trials and the clinical trials on the therapeutic side are phase one, two, three, or right. and phase four. And so it's a funny way of seeing what is truly a challenge that you have to you know, really see and take a hold of. One of the things that, that we do, which uh, I'll credit, I have some fantastic senior members of our team. Uh, one of the things that, that we do is from, from the beginning, we built integrated, uh, at Roche, they would call them life cycle teams. They're called global product teams and other areas. But, you know, the, the point is to make sure that from the beginning of even an idea around a product, that there's always a data science a diagnostic and a therapeutic representative or sets of representatives all right. present at the table talking from day one, because the reality is there's very few, if any companies that have decades of figuring out that common language, almost any company really has to do it themselves. So it means you have to consciously work at it. 
And you have to recognize within each group, there are different sources of risk that you almost have to have this cross-functional education session about where changing a number in one place might have an impact on how you run a trial five years later. And, um, you know, I think the key is having a really collaborative team. They're all focused on getting the right thing for the patient. So we, we all start at the patient and we back out to, you right. know, what are all the things that need to happen all the way down to where do we know need to go and get new data and developing that, that language as we go. You know, it, it's worked. It, it is absolute work. And I think anyone in our, our shoes will have to do it. I should call up your former guest and see if they have tips and pointers. <laughs> yeah, well, Recursion has certainly done a good job of, of scaling. It's, it's rare to look at a, a sort of find another AI-driven therapeutics company that's blitz-scaled the way they have. So they've done a good job. I'll give Tina a lot of credit. Um, it also occurs to me one of the languages that, that therapeutics and diagnostics folks don't always speak the same is, is regulatory. And I'm, I'm just curious if you can spend a minute on how much, given you guys are pretty early, but you know, you're entering IND, how much you're leaning on regulatory expertise and kind of baking that into the roadmap. Yeah, it, it came very early. Uh, you know, the good news is just at least from the, the background of the co-founders and actually some of our, our team members as well having already worked on some products. Uh, actually, we have team members that worked in the oncology space and uh, in the infectious disease space. So, you know, the concept that you're developing a, a, a test or a drug and they need each other is something that we all had a, an appreciation for that it can be complex and that you need to get really good guidance early on. I think guidance really comes in two ways. You know, if you think you need a capital C companion diagnostic or complementary diagnostic, you need to interact with both CDRH, you've got to interact with the diagnostic and device part of the FDA, and you have to start interacting with the therapeutics division. So very early on, we got you know, world-class expertise to help on both sides and made sure they were in the same room. I, I think mm -hmm. you know, 90% of the job is actually showing up in the same room and talking about this very early. The really good news, and you know, I've spent, I think, 20 years now in regulated markets, um, the FDA is your friend in this. They mm -hmm. do a lot of work to get guidance documents out, to invite you in and pre-submission, pre-IND meetings to have these conversations early. So I would say for all the listeners, re read the guidance documents, interact with the FDA That's early right. and often. That, that is their, their job is to get safe and effective therapies out just like yours is. And uh, it's something that, that we um, we're leaning heavily on as well. But you got to start early, point. way yeah. before, yeah, way before you're in the clinic. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's an excellent point, and I think you can sometimes read between the lines when you you hear about a, a biotech that maybe didn't succeed in their clinical strategy. Is it, they probably showed up too late, or were overly antagonistic? And and I've found maybe as a bit of a surprise, you know, all of my interactions with the FDA have been absolute delightful interactions. Not necessarily every meeting is hugs and kisses, but, but like they really are there to, to be on your team, right? Like we're all on the same side and through the Alliance for AI and healthcare, which is an organization I'm involved in, you know, we've really pushed hard to, to engage with the FDA on putting out guidance specifically around how to treat machine learning models as they are going to be playing a much bigger role going forward. I think, especially in diagnostics, but probably up and down the, the drug development food chain. I think it'll be everywhere. And, and that's great. I mean, it, it, it's mm -hmm. needed. There's a hunger for it. And, and you can even see, you know, the, there's pre-guidance documents that have come out, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on the subject 
we know that there was a before and we're in the after, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, looking at how, you know, novel ways of analyzing data, it's here to stay. It's embedded in how development programs will work. And the question is, you know, how do we do it in a safe way and, and do it at scale, uh, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, maybe a, a little bit of a shift of gear, but I'm still interested in the kind of company building. Since you and, and your co-founders are now you know, serial entrepreneurs and, and have had some success in your, your prior enterprise, um, I, I think some amount of our listenership are, are people more like me who are still in their first companies and trying to you know, navigate some of the waters. As I like to joke, you know, you have to make every mistake at least three times before you, you learn the right way to do it, you, even if there's a book out there to tell you the right way to do it first. Maybe you can just share top of mind some of the kind of lessons learned maybe a success story, but also a failure story. If you've got one of those, it always, always helps to make the rest of us feel um, not so alone in the world. Uh, you know, plenty of both. And, uh, you know, I think the, uh, you know, some of the biggest takeaways that, you know, we got from our, our last company and, and, and even confirmed as we've been working in Endpoint, especially when you're building very complex products. And, and I would say, you know, we're, we're unique in that we, as we spoke at the beginning of the podcast, we, we, we have, you know, really what are usually three different companies kind of under one roof. So it's a, a pretty, mm -hmm. pretty complex integration uh, process, which I think we've done a pretty good job of pulling it together. That's been a lot of the work. But I think in almost any area of healthcare, when you're working with your team, and especially as you scale, uh, a lot of founders start and, and they may be the technical expert or, or it's, you know, co-founders with a, a few technical folks and, you know, one of the things is as you scale, you get further and further away from being able to directly put your hands on the products, put your hands on the technology, and you have to build a company that scales. And what I can say is, you know, communication about where the company's going, what the, what the real critical endpoints are for patients. Uh, there's a reason we named our company Endpoint Health. It wasn't just to try and get a, a catchy name. It was it was as a, a purpose-built reminder for everyone, even when the founders aren't there or the execs aren't there, that if you're trying to make a technical decision, is it adding to the health of a patient? Can you, can you directly point to why you're doing it or not? Those pieces that you can ingrain into how the company functions, I think, are critical to, mm -hmm. for, for that long-term success. When you're small, you don't see it. But once you hit 10, 20, 50, 100 people, boy, they become present. Um, and, and I think we've, we've done a pretty good job there. I think, oh gosh, uh, lo looking at, at failures, um, it's actually, you know, I think we've done a pretty good job, but I'll say, you know, when you don't focus on, you know, a particular group of patients or a particular technology, that can be pretty difficult. Uh, I would say, you know, even early on at, at uh, our first company, you know, we had a lot of different products that we could have looked at making and it took a while to really focus down on two, just focus on two, you know, one lead one that was relatively simple that could prove out a platform and, you know, one area of kind of advanced, uh, advanced products where we, you know, we're looking at guiding therapy use. And mm -hmm. when I look back at the, the history of my first company, we could have made that choice in year two, but to be honest, it was year four. The company only existed independently for five years. So I always go and think, well, what would have happened, you know, if we had, mm -hmm. if we, had, you know, focused down and, and really looked a, a little bit earlier. Uh, it was a, a great success, but it, it all for me, it all comes down to: does everyone know where they're going, and can you help everyone prioritize their work 
And if you can do those two things, you can scale, you can help patients, you can spend money efficiently. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. those are two really critical areas. Yeah, it's great advice. Um, Great. You know, I want to close maybe just on something forward looking. Um, What will Endpoint Health look like when you've sort of accomplished what you've set out to do? And, you know, what what do you see as sort of the moment where you can stand and say, this is this is why we started? I mean, you've done such a good job of putting the North Star right in the name, right? So when when my co-founders and I got together, we really did start out the, the company saying, you know, we want to build the type of company that really is a the next version of what top 10, top 20 pharma companies look like. And, and that wasn't about building a really big company that, you know, had a large mm-hmm. market cap. It was, you know, really about if we can take these changes in technology, if we can take, you know, the ability to understand patients and turn that into practice with precision medicine development, if we can turn that into just the way that a company operates that develops new therapies, and we hit the same scale that your top 10 pharma companies are today, Mm -hmm. to me, what that means is we will have fundamentally driven a change in how healthcare is practiced because so many things would have to be true were that to occur. It would mean that we have a sea of approved therapies out being used. And, and, you know, if we look at the patient populations we're looking at, those would be medical miracles. We're talking about areas like sepsis Mm -hmm. or, you know, as you move on to areas in the autoimmune illness, places where patients, you know, even with the best therapies might only have a 30, 40, 50% chance of responding you know, if we hit that scale and maybe it's five years, 10 years, 20 years for us, what that means is there's been a transformation. And what, what I think would also be true is it wouldn't just be endpoint health that was successful. That would mean our partners were were successful. There would be other companies following along. And Mm -hmm. the beauty of that as a goal is not only are our patients that we treat better, but it means there's just a systemic, systemic change that would have to happen mm-hmm. for us to reach that scale. And you've seen it. You could see it in other industries. You know, I buy everything off of Amazon. They started with a bookstore. Any right. retail company could have said, I'm going to shut all my brick and mortar stores down and build a, an online presence. But it was Amazon that said, I'm going to build the future of retail. Tesla right. built a completely new car company. Everyone thought it was an electric car company, but in reality, they used the technology as a reason to build something that function differently than the current ecosystem. Right. And I think I'm looking at the lineup of all the new electric cars, it, 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 you drag an industry along with you. And I think for us, right. that's, that's really our goal is not just change the direct patients we serve, but be that example of what the future state should look like. Be the type of healthcare company that grandma really is proud of. That's a good litmus test, I think, for any healthcare company. Yeah. Jason Springs, Endpoint Health, thank you so much for uh, joining me for this conversation. This is uh, fascinating and, and again, great to, to see you guys doing this kind of work. Raphael, thank you so much for the time. Uh, for anyone that wants to get more information, you can go to our website at uh, endpointhealth.com. And uh, thank you for listening. This has been episode 27 of Talking Precision Medicine. Please share it with your colleagues, leave a comment or a review, and stay tuned for the next one. Thanks for joining the conversation.